My name is Maya Deary, and you're listening to Waves to Wisdom. This is the second part of a two-part interview with Dr. Jess Ponting, director of the Center for Surf Research and one of the architects of Stokes Certification for Sustainable Surf and Snow-Based Tourism. We pick up Jess's story when he's still a young man in search of his life's work, which turns out to be a set of academic and entrepreneurial endeavors that are grounded in a belief that well-informed, passionate, and motivated surfers can be game-changing leaders for a sustainable future. I hope you enjoyed the time with this inspiring surfer as much as I did. This is Waves to Wisdom. One of the aspects of your biography that I find so compelling is what you're describing now, which is this integration of your most sort of intellectual kind of frontal lobe drives, all of these these texts that were difficult to wrestle with, and then uh, your surfing life where it's just must be sheer joy and the ability to just play. And those two things were not disparate or necessarily even in competition with each other. It sounds as though they were feeding one another in ways that were helping both. Absolutely. I mean, I, I show my students now when we I teach classes in recreation and uh, you know we try to get them to wrestle with this idea of work and play and leisure versus work and I show them a picture of me surfing in a, in a barrel and uh, I tell them you know is this work or play and I'm like no this is me working this is me doing my PhD research part of what I need to do is to um, interact with surf tourists in the water while they're surfing to talk to them to get an understanding of what they're doing line up interviews yeah, it's it's very much a part. So when I go on my research trips, I'm always bringing back to the school my excess baggage fees from taking surfboards, and people raise eyebrows. I'm like, that's my research equipment right there. I can't go and study a surf break without surfing it. I have to know the idiosyncrasies of the breaks to see what kinds of markets it's suitable for. You have to speak to people as a surfer in the water so they'll give you access to their feelings about the place um, on a more authentic level. And you can meet and interact in an authentic way with local people when it's not in a guest host um, situation. And that gives you much greater access to what people really think about things and, and, and a more honest and human interaction with people. Let's talk about those raised eyebrows on uh, the various people who are suspicious of play because this is something you've thought about quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Since this entire project is, is on some level about uncovering wisdom, can you offer any insight or wisdom um, for people who do I'm going to use the word suffer, suffer from this idea that if it's fun and it feels good, if it feels like play, it must somehow be a waste of time or it's not responsible. Yeah, I think that's uh, essentially 100% wrong. I think if it, if it feels like play, then that's where you want to start. And you need to think, if, if that is in, you know, something that makes you happy and it is a passion of yours there's going to be a way for you to put different pieces together in ways that perhaps nobody has before so that you can construct a career that allows you to do that thing now it might be in a way that you hadn't expected but i really feel like that's possible so when i for example go meet people and they say well what do you do and i'm the director of the Center for Surf Research, people usually laugh and say, that sounds like the best job in the world. How did you get that job? 
and I, my replies I had to make it up and I think that that's kind of what you have to do if there's no clear career pathway on these things but it is something that you like and, and play is important to you then you've got to look for the ways to to put pieces together so that it, it can become a career path so I think that that's where you start it's not what you turn away from I think that works for any kind of human endeavor and I teach in a recreation program so um, that's what I'm always telling my students it's you don't shy away from that stuff this is all really important it impacts people's lives you know if you like dance and you're a dance instructor or whatever it is you're allowing people to access recreation and that makes their lives better it reduces crime rates it reduces suicide rates it uh, increases people's quality of life it increases the length of their life these are really really important valuable services that we're providing to the world my pathway was a little different not as direct i had to make it up but the value to me is making sure that this thing that I really like to do and that I've seen do pretty horrible things to people in less developed countries actually becomes a positive force. And I think the needle and the discourse has shifted in surfing in part as a, as, as a result of some of this work that not just me, but other people do as well. Absolutely. I mean, I know just a very little bit, a dangerous amount about the history of surfing and its roots in Hawaii. In a way, your life brings surfing uh, into a role that sounds analogous to what it was with the Hawaiians. It was part of this much larger existence that focused on the ocean, you know, ways to care for the islands that allowed them to live. And then you're passing this on to other people who are probably almost all trained to denigrate those priorities before they get to you. I would imagine that you have to open some minds that are closed to the possibility. Yeah, for sure. And, and for exactly those, you know, those reasons that you were talking about, where if, it, if it's fun, then it must be frivolous. And, you know, you career should be 100% uh, serious all the time and very boring otherwise you know or if you're not a lawyer or a doctor then it's not important the ancient Hawaiians had a very cool balance with the way that if the surf was good they dropped everything they went surfing they went surfing together and I think that's something that's kind of been lost with modern surfing when it was kind of brought back from the brink of extinction it was essentially a tourism marketing tool which is from my perspective as a tourism academic kind of interesting but what happened was that women were, were immediately written out of that narrative and the first tagline when uh, surfing was promoted was the only for Hawaii was the only islands in the world where men and boys ride upright in the crests of waves I was like, well, what about the women they did it too and thankfully I think we're, we're getting back to that a little bit you see more women in the lineup every year uh, more women traveling. When I first started surf traveling, I think I saw one woman that entire almost a year traveling through Indonesia. There was a wow. Japanese bodyboarder, and that was it. Now there's um, not tons, probably five to ten percent of, of people um, traveling there are women, but that's a vast improvement on one out of everybody. Absolutely. Well, it was interesting. One of the things that I noticed when I went to Costa Rica to Safari Surf, which is a business that you have a history of helping, was the number of solo female travelers who go down there. And I asked several of them, and it, it appears that in addition to creating a relatively sustainable 
you know, in terms of community and environment in Nosara, that it's all, it also feels very safe mm. um, for a lot of women my age and older who were down there by themselves and younger for sure. But I was particularly struck because I haven't seen a lot of women my age who are just learning to surf. And, uh, and there were quite a number down there. It was pretty darn cool. Yeah, that, that area in particular is one that's kind of set itself up in a way that, that lends itself to people who are learning, and, and particularly women, as you say. There are a lot of women there surfing, a lot of local women there surf as well, which is, you know, it's kind of awesome. And it's a relatively safe place to learn uh, to surf. I managed to get hit by a stingray down there on my first surf. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but I've never, <laughs> I haven't really seen anybody else get hit by one. One of my um, students did, if that yeah, makes you feel any better. So you got that PhD, and then did you spend any time consulting? I started doing consulting work in the second year of my master's. Gone into that master's degree, as I mentioned, solely focused on surf tourism. So every time there was an assignment, I would do it on surf tourism. And... I had some contacts and so for a tourism marketing class I got in touch with uh, the surf travel company which at the time was the world's most successful surf travel company. I believe it was the first one. The owner of that had discovered a whole bunch of breaks through Indonesia and had made himself a, a millionaire um, which he then lost everything but that's another quite good story. But I'd done a marketing report for him and they were just, they were terrible at running a business. They were a surfer who didn't really have much idea. He just had this great idea and put a whole bunch of people in a room and suddenly they're a travel agent and they're sending thousands of people off to great destinations, but they're not capturing any of their data or analysing it or looking at their marketing. And so this is one of my great life regrets coming up here. So what I did was I worked with their marketing intern, a switched on kid doing a business degree. And at the time, this is 2001, the internet was now a thing. People had email addresses. Penetration in the Australian market was probably only at about 25-30% of households. But we did an online survey and there was no platform to do that at the time. So we paid a, uh, a guy to code us a online survey that took the answers to that question deposited it in the right place in a spreadsheet and we had the um, algorithms in there to automatically calculate the results and we thought we should make a business out of this this is a really great idea and we toyed about it and uh, we had a business plan and then we never really moved on it and it was probably five years six years before SurveyMonkey came out wow um and yeah we we had the idea if if we had been smarter we would have just dropped out of the university, he would have quit his job and we would have just done that and we'd probably be sitting on our own private island somewhere in the Pacific, <laughs> but it didn't work out that way. It's a story I tell my students that, look, you only get an idea ahead of people maybe once in your life. If you have one of those ideas, you should probably do it. You should act on it. Yeah. But um, so we, we had done a good job. It was you know early days of market segmentation and email marketing. And we had enough data to segment the market into five distinct groups wanting five particular types of holidays. They were able to email market them. It cost them nothing. Normally they're sending out brochures or calling with targeted marketing offers that we knew they were interested in. 
And so they really liked that and then started hiring me as uh, not as a marketing guy, but as a sustainable tourism guy. Essentially, that guy wanted me to greenwash his proposals. So he sent me off to the Mentawai Islands. He was putting me up in hotels that were bigger than any house I'd lived in. I'd never stayed anywhere like that. I was the dirt floor hut guy and I'm in five-star hotels in Indonesia, feeling very, very odd. And then uh, he sent me out on a 100-foot like charter boat with a crew of five and me to look at this island that he, was, he had bought. And he wanted to raise the level of the island by a couple of metres and build 30 buildings around the outside of it. And he wanted me to essentially give a sustainability assessment on, was this a good idea? And to me, it just looked like a horrible idea. There was a, a brackish swamp in the middle that came because in times of high surf, the surf would just come right over the island, wash into the middle. There was a malaria problem because there was stagnant water on the island. The freshwater lens had become polluted by that salt water. There was massive sand erosion. The island is, it kind of shifts. It's a, it's a coral cay, little coral cay, about the size of a football field, maybe smaller. And on one side of the island, there's sand about 50 feet wide. And on the other, it's eroded right back to the roots of the coconut trees. And you come back the next year and it's reversed. So this thing's moving, the whole island is eroding and reforming and eroding and reforming. And it seemed to me that if he was gonna cover the whole island in, in like, 10 feet of dirt, it was going to choke out all the vegetation, there'd be nothing holding the island together and he would probably completely destroy the ecosystem and the island would erode into nothing. So when I got back he called me to a meeting with his investors and I'm like we should talk first, he's like no 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 just come to the meeting and so I sat down with uh, him and the investors and a celebrity surfer who was getting involved in the deal I said so what do you think? I said well I think if you build it the way that you're talking about it, you're probably going to lose the island within ten years, I think it'll just disappear. And he never hired me again after that. <laughs> that was it. But the investor guy did. I worked for them as well. Oh, good. Now, as a an interesting story about the uh, the guy who I was originally working for, when I went over to do my PhD research, so two or three years later, I had rented an apartment in Padang, the port city that services the Mentawai Islands. And I was living there by myself, making friends with the street kids who used to drink outside my apartment each night. And I was in, the, in there and I, I get a phone call. I got a cell phone. Cell phones were finally a thing. And um, that's this guy. I didn't even know that he knew I was in Indonesia. We hadn't contacted each other. He's like, oh, I've got an investor. Uh, I want you to come out on the on the boat with me. And I was trying to find ways to get out into the islands on a boat so I could do the research. And I'd only been there for a couple of weeks at this point. So I was like, oh, okay. It's like, right, I'm outside. Um, get your stuff and jump in the car. We're leaving. And he wouldn't get out of the car. And he was being real cagey. And he said, don't tell anyone I'm here, you know. And uh, so we went out on the boat for a week with some French investor. And it was appalling. Uh, he would pull up to villages and the villages would come out because he was looking to buy a new pieces of property and he'd be like I tell him we'll build him a big house and just making these false promises it, it was just the most disgusting way possible of doing business so I was there for a full season and by the end of the season he hadn't paid he had a fleet of five charter boats that he owned so he had bought all these secondhand Japanese Coast Guard cutters because they were really really cheap 
He'd had them driven to Thailand where they got outfitted to be surf charter boats, everything ripped out, put in bunks, um, stoves, cookers, turned into a little floating tiny hotel, and then driven down to Indonesia and was trying to run a fleet of charter boats. You can run a travel agency, let alone a fleet of charter boats, and they quickly started breaking down because they'd had a full life as Coast Guard cutters, and that's why they were so cheap. And he hadn't paid any of his boat skippers for two years. He had some of them like eighty, hundred thousand dollars each. And I was hanging out with some of these boat captains and they were getting very antsy about it, understandably. And so it was all backwards and forwards of, you know, oh, when are we going to get our money? And they'd say, the guy's name was Paul. Oh, you know, Paul will sort it out at the end of this week. And right when I was leaving, people were getting frantic. And they're like, Paul is going to come out and sort it out next week. He's going to be here next week. Um, don't worry about it. And next week comes and like, oh, Paul burst his eardrum in a scuba diving accident in Fiji and he can't fly. So he's stuck in Fiji. Sorry. Yeah, he'll be here in a couple of weeks. And that day uh, I was leaving. So I flew out from Padang and I had a connecting flight from Singapore back to Australia. And I'm in the line to get into my gate in Singapore. Someone picks up my backpack and runs off with it. And it's Paul. And I'm thinking, your eardrum's supposed to be burst and you're supposed to be in Fiji. And, and you know, nothing would surprise me with the guy. Australians call him larrikins. He's kind of loud and tries to be funny all the time. But he was acting very strangely. And we got onto the plane and he was sitting maybe four rows in front and two seats in away from me. And he had this book of bawdy pub jokes that he was reading aloud to me across four seats and two seats in. And it was just embarrassing. And anyway, we get to Australia and I get off the plane and go one way he gets off the plane and goes the other way and he is grabbed by security agents taken into the back of the airport where they find his intestinal tract is completely full of condoms filled with heroin wow and he spends the next eight years in jail oh, and the skippers never get paid I don't know okay um, the company was taken over he lost the company um, he got out of jail and I believe ended up going back again. It, it kind of broke him. His story was that he'd borrowed money from a loan shark. A loan shark was threatening to kill his father and harm his daughter unless he did this drug mule run. So I, I'm quite happy to believe that. That sure. would not surprise me. Yeah. So, yeah, I always use that as a cautionary tale for vertical integration to my students. <laughs> Seems like a, a good one. Yes. Stick with the business, you know. <laughs> a clear lesson. Um, so you're now an academic. Mm -hmm. You are a tenured professor at San Diego State University. Yep. You have founded and are running the Center for Surf Research. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Um, essentially... Uh, it is designed to look at the sustainability of surf tourism and be a vehicle to pursue those lines of research that are going to make surfing a positive impact wherever it goes. And there's been lots of different projects and bits and pieces that have kind of uh, arisen as a result of that. We have um, student interns, we've done study abroad trips, uh, the industry has sponsored us to go on boat trips to Indonesia with high-profile athletes to do look at the sustainability of surf tourism and the work of surf aid in the Mentawise in particular. Uh, Quicksilver were good enough to put those trips on for us a couple of times. 
my students get internships at, at surf camps in various countries, working with the managers of those places to learn about it. Developed Stoke Certified, a sustainability certification program for surf resorts out, out of this program. We put on conferences every year where we invite the public and we get people who are at the forefront of sustainability in various components of the surf industry to come in and, and talk and take questions. And there's a lot of, of research collaboration that comes out of that. So we've also started an international association of surfing academics, which has more than 60 members from 15 countries. And we're trying to create a community of researchers who are interested in those same kinds of issues. We've um, put out a, an edited book called Sustainable Stoke, which has 40 contributors across the surfing world from the very high profile to the very little known, but all kind of chiming in on what sustainability is and means in that space. I guess in a nutshell, that's kind of what we do is we've started a non-profit that was raising money for people in surfing destinations. Lots of moving parts over the years is that they, they ebb and flow and succeed and fail. And we, we run a lot of things up the flagpole to see what works. Since those months of being appalled by all of the surf businesses that you came across. Have you noticed a change? Is surfing as a, an industry and surf tourism in particular, are we doing any better? In pockets, for sure. People are definitely more aware. I mean, if you take the case of the Mentawai Islands, 15 years there was surf tourism there and nobody even realised that there was a local population of almost 90,000 people living out there, uh, enduring what had been described by a non-profit that worked in the area as a humanitarian crisis that surf tourism was doing nothing about. To it now being a place where that is widely understood and acknowledged, a lot of people who go there will make donations to the non-profits who work in that area. And some of them um, will even go ashore and buy things at the local stores, whereas that was never happening before. Through the certification program, there are now 13 resorts in 10 countries that are actively engaging with their local community in positive ways, contributing in cash terms to the conservation of the environment around them, making sure that all of their building and operations are sustainable according to widely adopted international standards. Uh, and then part of that also is educating their guests about sustainability and what that means in a surfing context. I think that sustainability has entered the lexicon of surf tourism. Um, some of the kind of linguistic artifacts of the research have entered into the lexicon of surfing. Um, so my PhD, for example, talks about surfing nirvanas and nirvanification, and, and that gets talked about in those terms in the surf media now. So people are becoming aware that this is what happens when you start a surf tourism destination and don't think about the end point. Now, there's more and more articles being written about surfing and surf tourism. Um, there's a lot of young people who've been exposed to the, the kind of research that we do who are going out and starting their own surf camps, surf resorts with sustainability as the central focal point of what they're trying to achieve. And that's happening. There's scores and scores of those all over the world and they're having you know, degrees of success and failure but they're going in with the right kind of idea. And I think that also the generational change between Gen Xs and Millennials has been a positive for this as well. The whole 
rah-rah nature of, of Gen X versus the millennials' uh, incessant search for the new and uh, what everybody's not doing kind of leads them down these pathways and sustainability I think for millennials is something that they just expect to be built in and it's expected to be cool and it's expected to make sense uh, and be creative but they don't want to be hit over the head with it. And just to clarify because sustainability is a word that's used often in a lot of contexts you're Mm -hmm. not just talking about solar panels and and gray water. Right I mean I am talking about those things but I'm also talking about um, who you hire to work in your resort, where the food comes from, does it come within a 50 mile radius? Do you have a purchasing policy that says we go to the village right next to us first and what they can't provide us with then we go a little step further? Are you using four stroke engines or two stroke engines on your boats that service your surf resort? Do you educate your guests about how not to damage coral coming in and out of the water? Uh, do you use moorings rather than anchors when you're around coral reefs? Um, do you educate your guests about cultural heritage and how to be culturally sensitive? There's 143 metrics that we use and more than 300 compliance indicators. So I could literally talk for the next four hours and probably not get through the whole list of things that we run them through. It takes up to a week to go through that and fact check it in the field. So it's very comprehensive and it's not just environment. To me, that's the easy stuff. That's why it gets the most attention because it's real easy to just not, not wash your sheets every day claim to be an environmental champion when all you're doing is cutting your water costs in half. You haven't really done any hard work. When I first learned about the certification process, one of the most exciting aspects to me was the way that it immediately sort of circumvents the attitude that I frequently run into of it's either people or the environment. Mm -hmm. And clearly this is at least one manifestation of in which it's not either or, it has to be both and. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that works on every single imaginable scale. If you look at what's happening in the global politics of the environment and development, you see that shift. Back when I first went out as a community development worker with Agenda 21, it was kind of people or environment. And the whole thing was go out and lock up land in protected areas. And one of the things I learned very quickly in that village environment was that is not going to cut it. I talked to them about it and they're like, "Mm -mm, we're going to need a plan B. If you are asking us not to extractively use our resources for economic development, then give us a better idea. And... uh, sustainable tourism was the better idea. You can have people in there, they're very interested in your culture and how you farm and what your houses look like and that you get around in dugout canoes, build a guest house, we'll advertise it. People will come in, they'll check out what you do, keep it at small enough numbers that it doesn't disrupt the village, instruct them not to behave in ways that you find offensive and you're making money from those same resources that you would have clear felt and completely ended your way of life as you knew it all the way up to the way the global politics has changed from that Agenda 21 mindset of must lock up protected areas. In many cases, that excluded Indigenous people from going into those areas and hunting in the ways that they had or living in those places that they had traditionally. And that doesn't go well for Indigenous people. I mean, there's examples from everywhere in the world where people have been displaced from their lands and they move into cities. usually ends in alcoholism and suicide for a lot of people. So now you see 
instructions coming down from the level of the United Nations, the Millennium Development Goals, where only one of those directly refers to the environment. The rest of it is about let's end poverty because uh, people who are only concerned about where their next meal is coming from don't have the luxury really to care about environmental conservation. It's much more, okay, what do I need to make sure my kid isn't hungry? So you, education, making sure that there's gender equality. If you don't have those things, then environmental conservation isn't going to work. So, yes, I completely agree and on lots of different scales and levels. Shifting to a more personal note, can you articulate now as you're, you're a grown man, you run this no, center? Allegedly. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, I think that's as good as it gets for any of us. <laughs> no. uh, you run the Center for Surf Research. You've got a secure job as a tenured professor. Uh, you're a husband and a father. What role does surfing play in your life now? It plays the same role a keel and a rudder do on a boat. Um, otherwise, I'd, I think I'd just be adrift at sea. So it, it keeps it stable and it gives it a direction. I don't really like exercising and as a man in my 40s it's crucial that I do or I fall into poor health. I hate jogging, I hate anything really that uh, makes me hot and sweaty and hurts but surfing I can do, well I was going to say all day long but I managed three hours today and then I'm pretty much shut down. <laughs> uh, but it keeps me healthy, um, it's the closest thing that I come to having spiritual experiences with. I'm, I'm not really into organized religion or the idea of a deity. I understand almost everybody else in the world is. Uh, but it puts me in touch with something that's bigger than myself and gives me the space to think about what I'm doing. And then also it gives me the space to not think about anything as well. Just check out a dolphin that's six inches away from my foot or ride a beautiful wave that uh, allows me to enter a flow state where there's really nothing else going on in my mind other than what's immediately in front of me. I think those are very important mind-clearing moments when you have the stress of the world on your shoulders, and as you, particularly as you get older and um, responsibilities grow and become more intense and other people are relying upon you, which for an irresponsible person is, can be quite a daunting thing. All of the ways that I make money and hope to make money, and I, I have several businesses as well as the work that I do at the Centre for Surf Research, they're all revolving around surfing. Um, almost all of the relationships that I have come from my interest in and the things that I do in surfing outside of my family. So it's incredibly important uh, to me. My wife understands that I'm just a much better person to be around if I'm going surfing on a regular basis, and she understands that you know it's it's tough because if we go anywhere it has to be somewhere where there's surf but she's lived with me when I haven't had frequent access to the surf and as much as it, it annoys her because it limits our choices she kind of understands that if I'm going to be a human being then that needs to that needs to happen. <laughs> Boy that sounds crucial that that supportive spouse is very important. For sure. Okay, so uh, I told you a little bit, and, and I'm going to use this person as, an, as a stand-in for who I, I suspect are a great many people. I've got a friend who is the head of a small school, and she's trying to wrap her head around sustainability in a way that values place. Many schools are so focused on preparing their students to go away, mm -hmm. to be somewhere else, and they're focused on these uh, abstract portable standards as a result. And there's a lot of uh, missed opportunity for students to learn as they're contributing to their 
local communities. And this is a town that's relevant to your situation because there are a lot of surfers, uh, a lot of people who fish, most of the teachers, administrators, and students, and their families, many of them have intimate relationships with the ocean. Do you have any words of advice for people in positions where um, they can make some decisions to guide culture, whether it's at a school or a business, ways that they should think about sustainability and community and place based on your experience? Sure. I think that there's some interesting frameworks out there, and, and um, the Stokes certification, for me, you know, maybe has some value in looking at those particular situations because it's very place-focused. Um, I'm going to pull a book off my table which has Reinventing the Local in Tourism, Producing, Consuming and Negotiating Place on the title because I'm interested in that stuff. And to me, that's a big part of sustainability. It's one that can be tough for some people to grapple with in the tourism context as well. How do we, you know, we want to build a surf resort. How do we make it local? How do we make it locally relevant? Well, there's tons of ways to do that, to interact with your local community and interpret it culturally and environmentally. It's really not that hard to do. Uh, and I think from an educational perspective, it breathes life into education if there is a context that's relevant and now and interesting and fun local as well. Uh, I mean, I spend a lot of my time talking about international tourism, so, but a lot of those same concepts are very relevant locally with the way that in my context surfing culture operates. But sustainability-wise, all of these things are playing out in all facets of life every day all around us. Uh, and it can be you know, looking at the different industries that there, where are things coming from, what are the footprints of those, culturally what's going on, who's in, who's in that area and um, whose ideas get prioritised and for what reasons. All, all of those things are um, related to sustainability and can very easily be studied in a local context and I think it's really important to do it that way too. Is there anything else that you would like to say about surfing, uh, the idea of waves to wisdom, anything you can think of? The key thing I think for, for me is that surfing is something that's just incredibly fun to do, whether it's your very first day doing it or whether you've been doing it for 10,000 days. It's almost without fail fun. I can't think of a surf session that I regretted. Say this to people in the car park all the time as the surf's looking very marginal and they're looking at each other and going, you always feel better if you surf than if you don't. So it's a powerfully good time that is reliant upon all kinds of different factors. You know, storms that blew up thousands of miles away local bathymetry, tides, winds. You have to have an understanding of natural systems to understand where and when the waves are going to be good. There is no other sport that immerses you in quite literal terms in the natural environment like surfing. Um, I'll bend over four hours after I finish surfing and the Pacific Ocean will come gushing out of my nose. There's no escaping the natural environment when you're a surfer. We're the canaries in the coal mine for water quality 
and lots of other environmental issues. Uh, we come face to face with all kinds of sea life on a daily basis. I get within 10 feet of a dolphin almost every time I go surfing. So it's a powerful tool for understanding a lot of different environmental systems as well as the social systems of people who go out and surf that. But from an, an educational perspective, there's so many different angles that you can look at through the lens of surfing, whether it's meteorology, you know, the, the chemistry of the surfboard that you're surfing on, social structures of the, the people who participate, the history of the sport, uh, the global politics of surfing and, and colonisation over the years through surfing, how tourism gets managed, the recreational benefits of tourism. I mean, it just goes on and on. But it's such a fun and rewarding thing to do that puts you in touch with so many things. It can be used as a lens to understand all kinds of different things and it breathes life into that otherwise lifeless study of stuff. I mean, speaking autobiographically, that's what turned me from a B student into an associate professor was looking at the world through the lens of surfing and it coming alive as a result of that and uh, making the idea of study something that was kind of arduous into something that was kind of fun. This is the last question, and this is to benefit my students, mm -hmm. and I would imagine a lot of other students in the world who um, sometimes can't see the relevance of wrestling with difficult texts that seem to be about very abstruse ideas. Can you cite one or two difficult texts that don't seem to have anything to do with surfing that have helped you in your career of changing the world through surfing? Sure. So my PhD work, for example, which is I mean, to put it in the, the, the context of relevance, has gone on to inform policies governing surf tourism management in a number of different countries is based on theory that you might not necessarily consider is, is going to fit into that. For example, Berger and Luckman's uh, Social Construction of Reality from 1969 greatly informs the idea of how people construct their versions of reality based on symbolic elements and how they will cling to those, indeed fight and die in order to protect them, but they are indeed just social constructions, informs my understanding of how surfing tourism, the, the I refer to it as space, which comes from Henri Lefebvre, talking about the construction of spaces. And it also draws on the work of the British sociologist Anthony Giddens, and there's a lot of uh, geographers who talk in these terms as well of these spaces that are socially constructed and based upon symbolic elements to the point where they can become mobile. And so space is essentially informed place, place being a geographic region and your understanding of that becomes the space. And that can become mobilized. Giddens calls it becoming disembedded and becoming informed by symbols that are uh, greatly distant from that geographical location. And that's exactly what happens in surf tourism. When a new surfing destination is discovered, often it's in a very remote, disenfranchised, marginalised area of an already marginalised developing country. And it will go from being you know, a fairly dire living situation for an indigenous culture to being the most coveted luxury surfing destination in the world you know, in a matter of a year. And that's all about socially constructed space 
based upon these symbolic elements that are communicated through media and that have strong associations with the way that power works. And uh, Michel Foucault has a lot to say about the way that that power works, which informs our understanding of how cultures can come in from the outside, uh, completely circumvent local understandings of space and manoeuvre things to their own benefit. Um, understanding the way that surf breaks are governed is also, there's a lot to take from uh, the work of Foucault, who talks about different types of surveillance and different ways of disciplining people to make them behave in particular ways. And that can come from the level of states putting in place laws. It can be people wanting to conform to social norms and behave in particular ways. We can get an understanding of that through the application of Foucault's work as well. Um, also, um, that particular field of study has been influenced by Eleanor Ostrom's work in social ecological systems you know, from the area of political economy and how we, you can look at surf breaks as, as a commons, as a, a common pool resource, and how we manage those can be greatly informed by her work governing the commons. So, I mean, from sociology to anthropology, um, these larger scale concepts can be really, really helpful in understanding how the world works. I mean, I was a late bloomer when it came to getting into the social sciences in any really deep way. And to me, it's quite magical the way that it, it can give you an understanding of the world and almost predict the future in the way that things might unfold because you can have such a deep and rich understanding of the processes that are at work in a context. And uh, they, they certainly help inform my understanding of surfing in the real world. And I, I see it playing out according to those theories. Uh, I mean, nothing fits within a neat box, but it gives you a good window on, on understanding what's going on. Thank you so much. This was a profoundly generous gift, especially for an introvert whose idea of hell is networking. <laughs> and thank you for the wonderful surfs, both of them. My pleasure. Thanks for giving me an excuse to go surfing. For more interviews and more information about Dr. Jess Ponting, the Center for Surf Research, and Stokes Certification, visit wavestowisdom.com.